Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad that you're with us. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 6. We are continuing our series, Behold the Lamb. And today we are starting a new mini-series within this year-long study of, of the book of Revelation called The Day of the Lord. The title for today's message is, Let the Day of the Lord Begin. I want to begin this way, um, opening day anticipation. Some of you know what I mean. By that I mean I'm a huge baseball fan, and uh, mainly the Tigers, the White Sox, growing up as a kid. I used to play wiffle ball every day, and by every day I mean sometimes two, three times a day. When I was older, I loved to coach baseball. I loved to watch it. I loved to go to live games as much as I could. I loved to watch my son play baseball. Uh, up until this year, I would, uh, I would go and watch the high school kids still uh, play baseball. There, to me, there was nothing like the sport of baseball. And there was nothing like opening day in professional baseball. Why? Well, there's an anticipation that comes uh, with the thought of things to come. Uh, there's, uh, there's intrigue and wonderment and uh, the thoughts about my team. Can my team do it? How will they do this year? What are their chances to make the playoffs or even to win it all? Now, some of you understand me when I talk about anticipation with this. Others of you might be lost a little bit, so I might uh, draw a different uh, analogy by saying anticipation of Black Friday. Uh, shopping, or maybe even the anticipation of vacation in Mexico or Bora Bora. And now you're kind of understanding, like those moments leading up until it actually happens, anticipation. Now the point is, there's lots of questions going into opening day. Only when the game starts, only when the stores open, only when the plane takes off, can you sit back, take a deep breath, and say, here we go. Am I right? I think I am. Uh, The thing about each one of us and and about each one of these things is is that there's a plan in place usually for opening day. There's a beginning and there's an ending. And it's usually all mapped out for us. Whether you're shopping or vacations or going to that opening day baseball game, it's usually planned out how I'll spend my money, where we will go every day. There's the anticipation of getting there. And for our text today, we want to see how the Trinity is active in bringing all things to an end. We are in this moment now. We are in the throne room and we are worshiping and bowed down. And we have cast our crowns at Jesus' feet. And he has taken the scroll of judgment of God on the earth. But what do we do? What does he do with it? There's an anticipation here. There's an anxiousness. Now that he has it, is that just the end of it? Or or will he open it? And if he opens it, what will will we see? And this is why chapter 6 is so important. What will he do? Verse 1 of chapter 6 says this. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And right there we know there's our answer. We don't need to worry. God is sovereignly in control over this event. So, 
for the hub of the message today, I thought uh, I would give you this. The sovereignty of God displayed in last things. The sovereignty of God displayed in last things. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God, right? Amen? We believe in that? We believe that He is in control over everything, even what we're going through right now. But as I sat at my kitchen table this week, I, I wondered out loud, do we really know what it means? Are we hopeful? Do we have a vision for what this means? I hope you have your YouVersion app open so you can follow along, because I just had some thoughts on the sovereignty of God before we went further. To say the sovereignty of God, uh, that God is sovereign over everything, is to say this. There's no limit to his rule. This is part of what it means to be God. He is sovereign over the world. Everything that happens in it, he is sovereign. He is never helpless. He is never frustrated. He is never at a loss. Now listen, in Christ, God's awesome sovereign providence is the place we feel most relevant, most secure, and most free. Whatever, whenever God acts... He acts in a way that pleases God. God is never constrained to do a thing that he despises. This is what we mean by sovereignty. He is never backed into a corner. There is only, uh, excuse me, where his only recourse is to do something he hates to do. He does whatever he pleases. That's what we mean by sovereignty. John Piper wrote, and I hope you follow along with this. This is kind of a long one, but here it is. Sometimes we need to plunge our minds into the ocean of God's sovereignty. We need to feel the weight of it. Like deep, heavy water pressing against every pore, the deeper we go. A billion rivers of providence pour into this ocean, and God himself gathers up all his countless deeds from eternity to eternity, and pours them into the current of his infallible revelation. He speaks and explains and promises and makes his awesome, sovereign providence the place we feel most relevant, most secure, most free. And he goes on to write this, and I really like this. Sometimes we need to be reminded by God himself that there is no limit to his rule. We need to hear from him that he is sovereign over the world and everything that happens in it. We need his own reminder that he is never helpless, frustrated, never at a loss. We need his assurance that he reigns over every nation. He reigns over every people, every language, every tribe, every chief, president, king, premier, prime minister, and politician, whether great or small. Write this down. God is awesome in his sovereignty. God is awesome in his sovereignty. If you believe that, put amen in the chat. Today, we want to see how his sovereign control looks in last things. Again, the hub of the message. The sovereignty of God displayed in last things. And there's so much that can lead us astray when we call things last things. Now, some call this end times. Some call this the tribulation period. 
Some call it the time of Jacob's trouble or the 70th week of Daniel. Now, while all those words are accurate and even biblical, I want to be careful and mindful of throwing too much at you at this time and to make it all confusing. I told Jeremiah this morning, I want to paint with a broad brush. We'll fill in the colors next week. We want to talk about God being sovereign in last things. He was sovereign in first things. We believe that. He was sovereign in creation. We believe that. He was sovereign in middle things, in the formation of Israel, in the Messiah, in the cross, in salvation, the church, and the giving of his word. And he will be sovereign in last things. Again, I love that line from Piper. Sometimes we need to be reminded by God himself that there is no limit to his rule. We need to hear from him that he is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. And that includes what Danny read for us earlier today in chapter 6. That brings us to verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Jesus has taken the scroll and he's going to open it because he has authority to do that. And in doing so, he is going to usher in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Hopefully you've seen our new artwork for that. Thank you, Hannah, for that. But he has ushered in the day of the Lord. And that's what this is called. Write this down as our first point. It should be on the screen. Almighty God is sovereign. He finishes what he says he will do. Almighty God is sovereign. He finishes what he says he will do. 17 times in the Old Testament and five times in the New Testament, God has told us that one day he will come, not as a gen gentle shepherd, but as a mighty, glorious, terrifying king. And he will conquer the nations. He told us he was going to do that. And it will be dreadful, troublesome, tribulation-filled time. Again, he has told us he's going to do that. And the breaking of the seals outlines for us what this will look like from beginning to end. But again, he's already told us all of these things. Psalms, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Isaiah, Matthew, Luke, all give us a glimpse at the sovereignty of God in last things. Zephaniah calls this the great day of the Lord. If you have time this week, look up Zephaniah 1, 15 and 16. It says this. The great day of the Lord is near. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, cloud and thick darkness. God has told us that this day is coming. And in this section of revelations that we're going to look at from chapter 6 through chapter 18, we're going to see what it looks like. God always tells us, listen, this is important. God always tells us the beginning and the end. And because he is in control, not only does he tell us, he goes and does exactly what he says he would do. That's why he's God. In chapter 6, we're going we're to see a giant overview of the seven-year tribulation or the day of the Lord, where Jesus will tread out the winepress of the wrath of God so that the hard-hearted people will call on Mother Nature to fall on them rather than give in to his majesty. And here's how it works. 
Uh, by the way, before we go, I just want to let you know there's, there's a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation. We're going to try and talk about that next week, especially this seven-year-long tribulation. Where does that come from? Why do people say that? I don't want you to be confused. Understand today we're just talking about the seal judgments and the, and the day of the Lord. I think you're going to be amazed, though, how he shows how accurately he's going to do things because he's in control. So, in this chapter, it gives us the seal judgments. All of the judgments that make up the entirety of the tribulation are found in the seal judgments. The seven seals are broken, and in the seventh seal comes forth seven trumpets. And when all the seven trumpets have been blown at the seventh trumpet, it brings forth seven bowls, all of these judgments. And at the end of the seventh bowl, the Lord returns to set up his kingdom here on earth. That's why we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because it hasn't happened yet. At this point, Jesus is breaking the, last, the beginning of the last things. He's breaking the seal. And God is always keeping his word. God is sovereign. He does what he says he will do. God is sovereign in the fact that he is in control of all events. Write that down. God is sovereign because he's in control of all events. Now I want you to notice here in this text, I want you to underline who's in control. Who says come? Who says you have permission to do this? Notice as we read, we're going to look at, at eight verses here. And I want you to underline that in your text as you look with me. Verse one says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider with a bow and a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And there came a bright red horse, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Look at verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, the third living creature said, Come! And notice these things weren't coming until they were given permission. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed like to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Again, permission. Verse 7, And he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was death. And Hades followed him. And he was given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Now in these, listen, in these four seals, it's the beginning of the tribulation. But who allows them to come forth? Who is in control here? Jesus is in control. He opens and he instructs. He tells the creatures to call them out. It's, it's a rider that's been permitted. It's a voice giving direction. It's happened with authority. Why? Because God is sovereign in control over last things. And he is directing like a five-star general. We're going to let this happen now. And now we're going to let this happen. And now this is going to happen. Well, what's happening here? What are we reading as we read this? Well, let's take each one of the seals and, and look at that. Seal number one, the horse and rider. The horse was white, 
doesn't give us much about the, but the writer, but it does give some, some uh, statements that make you think maybe this is Jesus because he comes out in peace conquering. But it isn't Jesus. Jesus, remember, is in heaven here giving instruction. A white horse meant victory, wearing a crown and conquering. But there are differences in this rider and in Jesus from Revelation 19. Yes, Jesus rode a white horse, but Jesus came with a sharp sword. This rider came with a bow. And notice this bow doesn't have any arrows. This rider conquers in peace without an arrow. Jesus conquers by slaying his foes. This rider has a crown and is, and, and, or is given a crown, but Jesus has many crowns. So then who is this? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that many will come in his name, false Christ, and this is the last one. Here it's labeled uh, the anti or antichrist, having an appearance like Jesus, a man of peace, but really it's all a lie. Scripture tells us that the false Christ will make, a, a, in Daniel chapter 7, he'll make a treaty with Israel at the beginning of these last days. And the people will love him. And he will conquer without issuing an army to go forth. He will conquer simply by, by his word. And peace will reign. He will conquer without a shot being fired. Scripture also tells us it will last for three and a half years and the truth will come out. That he is an evil, lying dictator. Israel will build its own temple, yet he will proclaim himself Lord in the middle of the tribulation. This is who we see as the first rider. The second rider and horse is the red horse. During this first three and a half years, peace has gone out, but now man turns against man. People turn against people and nations turn again towards Israel. Notice this rider has a sword. Maybe your text says a great sword. The, the definition of this sword is an assassin's sword. Men will be killing one another at an alarming rate especially those who profess the name of Christ as Lord during the tribulation period. The third rider and horse, it's a black horse and rider. What follows war? What follows murder? Famine? War-torn countries all over the continent want for and need food. Resources have been depleted. And if you want an example, consider the measures even right now our beef industry is taking so that we don't run out of supply and demand. But when there is war and murder, famine follows. And notice this rider's different. Where the, the first rider had a bow and the second rider had a sword, this rider has scales. And by scales, uh, maybe a, a local term would be a bar scanner or a cash register. Because in that, it was a way that they measured out one thing and you put in money equal to the amount of whatever that was that you bought. So if a, 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 a pound of wheat was 10 cents, you would put a pound of wheat on one side and 10 cents on the other side. Well, notice here, uh, it, gives some, it gives some monetary amounts. It says, a quart of wheat for a denarius. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, it used to be that a denarius, which is a day's wages, about $65 if you were just making minimum wage, uh, that would buy 10 quarts 
of wheat. And likewise, 30 quarts of barley. Barley was what you fed animals, but in a famine, you eat whatever you can. Here, it's a day's wages for a loaf of bread. Think about that. That's expensive bread. But yet God is sovereign in all of that because he does not allow the oil and wine to be touched. Why? Because he's God. And that's what he cries out. And then we see the last horse. Notice the text says, He opens the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the four, fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. The previous four riders were given, three riders were given four items. A bow with no arrows, a crown, a sword, and scales. This rider is given four items. He's death. The pale horse here used, it's really kind of the wrong term. It's more of a gray-green color. And if you've ever seen a rotting corpse, you'll know exactly what this horse looks like. And it was given um, four things. Notice it says, they, death and Hades, were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, to kill with famine, to kill with pestilence, and to kill with wild beasts of the earth. So the rider is death, and it has a partner that rolls with it. It's called Hades. Death and Hades are the place reserved for the unsaved. Death is where the body goes. Hades is where the spirit goes. And they were given a sword to kill, famine to kill, pestilence. Pestilence is disease that causes death. Sound familiar? And wild beasts to kill. And if you're thinking, well, maybe rabid lions and bears. I asked this question to my kids yesterday. Maybe you know the answer. What wild, what wild animal has killed the most people to date? Do you know? A rat. Rats in the 14th century ravished almost one-third of Europe in the bubonic plague. And now, it doesn't have to be large animals. It doesn't have to be small animals. Either way, death and Hades have brought judgment on the earth. The so-called man of peace will break his treaty. War will break out. Famine. Death will follow. And all of these are true characteristics of who is behind it all. That is the devil, the murderer and liar from the beginning. But write this down, and I found comfort in this. God in his sovereignty is still merciful. In his sovereignty, God is still merciful. Notice the, the fifth seal. And he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. I want to stop there. Who are these souls? These are those that have come to Christ during the tribulation. Many of them Israelites, but not limited to them. Jesus told the Israelites this would happen in Matthew 24. He said that they would be hated by all nations. They would be persecuted for his namesake and many would be killed. Matthew 24, 9. But good news, God is in control. The one thing I take away from this is the church has been removed, yet people are still being saved. In the midst of all of this evil, God is still saving people. He is merciful. Notice verse 10. They're given the redeemed reward. Verse 10 says this. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign 
Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And verse 11 says, and they each were given a white robe as were all the redeemers in the church. And they were told to wait a little longer. There is going to be a great revival in the last days. And who's in control of that revival? If we believe the sovereignty of God in salvation now, we must believe the sovereignty of God in salvation then. And he's saying, rest a little while longer. Again, another merciful statement. Until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be completed. In other words, when John sees this, God wasn't finished reaping from the earth yet. More were coming into his family because God is in control. That's an amazing fact that God is merciful. It's an amazing fact that God is merciful at all. For years, these people have been unfaithful towards him, yet he still saves. Even when the restraining force behind evil, the church has been removed, he still goes forth in great power and saves souls because God is sovereign. And he displays it even in last days. Fourthly, God is sovereign and he reveals the hardness of man's heart toward him. Sadly, that's where this text leads us. We have seen the introduction of the man of sin. We have seen that after he brings peace, war, famine, death, persecution come, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24. And now the hardness of man's heart is revealed. In the midst of all of this, we see that they have not turned to him. This is where the text leads us. The sixth seal is broken. Notice verse 12. And he opened the sixth seal. And I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon like blood. And the stars that fell from the sky to the earth as fig trees shed its fruit when it's shaken by a gale and the sky vanished like a scroll that was being pulled away and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings and all the people that were listed there go into caves, into rocks of the mountains and they call for the mountains and rocks to fall or hide them. John says, then I looked and behold, this is a big event. Jesus called this event the beginning of birth pains. Now, meaning from this point on, it's going to be quicker and harder and longer. Today's my daughter Alex's birthday, but I remember that night when I came home from work and my wife, I, I had gotten a shower, I came to bed, she got up and I said, are you okay? She was almost nine months pregnant. She goes, I think my water broke, but I'm not sure. About an hour later, she had what was uh, a considerable life event. It was called a labor pain. And she shot straight up in bed. But I wish, I wish that was the only one she had. But as time went along, they got worse and 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 worse, and worse until Alex came. And now let me tell you, that's the way the tribulation will be from this point on. Pain upon pain upon pain upon pain upon pain until Christ returns. And this is going to be bad. Ladies, you understand that. Guys, you don't. Just note, it's bad. 
Notice there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. That's a mourning cloth. Mourning as in death mourning, not early mourning. The full moon became like blood. The sky fell to the earth, probably meaning meteorites versus stars because most stars are bigger than our planet. And then the sky vanished like a scroll that was being uh, rolled up. And this is interesting because from this point on, man can look into heaven and see the one seated on the throne. The seals peel back heaven and by their own testimony, they see the one seated on the throne and they see the Lamb. And how hard must their hearts be that even now they do not want to submit to God's will, but rather they call on Mother Earth to fall on them. And notice this earthquake was so bad that every mountain and island was removed from its place. This sixth seal shakes the earth like a seven-year-old shakes a snow globe. Nothing is the same. And then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among rocks and mountains. Why do they list so many people? Because this affects everyone. Everyone who has hardened their heart. And they call on mountains and rocks, Mother Nature, to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Little did they know they were quoting even from the Old Testament when they say that. God is sovereign even in those who have hardened their hearts towards him. He's dealing with them. He's answering the fifth seal. How much longer, O Lord? And he says a little while longer. Well, where to go? I just want to finish with this. In his sovereignty, his judgments are dreadful, yet he is good. God in his sovereignty over last things will tread the winepress of wrath on those who do not believe in Jesus. And even in that, God is righteous and God is good. And we should read texts like this and be comforted that our God has reached down and saved us, has a plan for us. And I want to go back to what Piper said, beginning of the, of the message. Sometimes we need to plunge our minds into the ocean of God's sovereignty. We need to feel the weight of it. It's like a deep and heavy water pressing against every pore the deeper we go. God himself gathers up all these countless deeds of providence and pours them in the current of his infallible revelation. He speaks and explains and promises and makes his awesome sovereign providence the place we feel most relevant, most secure, and most free. We can find hope in the sovereignty of God. We don't have to have all of the answers. We can trust those things to the Lord. We just need to know in this broad picture of last things, God is still in control, and God is going to be awesome in his sovereignty over all of these things. Sometimes we, we need to be reminded by God himself 
that there is no limit to his rule. If we believe that he was sovereign in first things, we must believe that he was sovereign in middle things. And clearly, he will be sovereign in last things. The great day of the Lord is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let the day of the Lord begin. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You, uh, you said all the way back in Genesis 15, shall I not tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And you are always faithful to do exactly what you said you would do. But what you do is give us breadcrumbs through your scripture about everything that, that you're going to do. And then we are surprised even still when you do it. You told us that through the line of Israel, Messiah would come. You told us that through David, Messiah would come. You said that Judas would produce the lamb, the lion, and David would produce the lamb. Lord, you, you showed us all of these pictures that pointed to Jesus, and he came. Your word now tells us that you are wrapping up history, and as you do that, you have a plan, and this will be the great and terrible day of the Lord. Yet in it, you are good. You love us so much, God, that even in the midst of drawing out your church and punishing the world, you still save people who cry out to you. We can trust in you, God. And we need to learn to trust in you even right now in this moment. So much of our life is wrapped up in this, this here and now and we're not seeing big picture. Help us to see the broad strokes of what you are doing in your sovereignty. Help us to embrace it and to trust you that no matter what you do, you are good. You are, you are, it, is, it is who you are. And your goodness goes forth. And we are going to sing of that goodness because you are faithful. You will complete your word. We will rejoice. We will be happy. And you will usher in your new kingdom, the kingdom that we have prayed for. And it will be a glorious time. Father, we look forward to that. But today we do pray. Lord, we don't know the reaches of this. We don't know how your spirit works, but we pray that even in this moment, if there's anyone who does not know you, they would turn from their sinfulness and turn to you. That they would repent of, of trying to do it their own way and cling to Christ, their Savior, who died for them, was buried and rose again, defeating death so that they could have eternal life. Holy Spirit, would you work in that heart right now? Give them the, the prayer. Give them the desire of their heart to cry out to God for salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name. You are loved. Look forward to seeing you again this week. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.